My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. I am Iron Hello, happy holidays to all. Welcome to the post-credit pod. Eric holiday party. The post-credit podcast holiday party. That is true. We're both <laughs> we're both sipping some adult beverages over here as we cheers, as we Brandon. cheers over uh what is it? Zoom, Skype, I don't even know what Zoom, we're on. Zoom, Zoom. Clearly, this is not my first drink. So I'm excited about it. Got a lot of great things to talk about today. We're going to hit the Midnight Sky, George Clooney's big budget sci-fi movie coming to Netflix. We're going to talk about Eric's favorite Star Wars movie, Rogue One. Long time, long time coming, B. We had, so it started off as Star Wars month, turned into Star Wars two months. Which I love, by the way. Like, I've just had a huge grin on my face for the last two months. Yeah, it's been great. And we've seen some nice growth thanks to Star Wars, so that's cool. But um, we weren't going to let this time pass and talk about pretty much all of these Star Wars films except the only one that really matters. (laughs) (laughs) It has been on our minds for quite a while, Eric. You are an unabashed, consistent supporter of Rogue One. I love it as well. But like, in honor of just sending off Mando in, in good fashion, we might as well hit hit one of both of our favorite Star Wars movies. Some might call me a Rogue One truther. <laughs> Some might. The conspiracy theorists might. Yes. The tinfoil hat crowd might. Uh, but before we get to those, we got some news to run through. First on the docket, Yesterday, which was Monday, we're recording this on Tuesday, I ran an exclusive scoop on Observer that David Gordon Green, who did the 2018 Halloween sequel and who's done you know comedies like Pineapple Express, he is working with Blumhouse and Morgan Creek on a sequel to The Exorcist. So that was pretty big news. Uh, William Friedkin, the original director, will not be involved. Uh, it's early, way early in development right now. Not a lot is known, but you know the fact that they're going back to that well after I think four or five total movies, a TV show that was well received but unfortunately criminally underwatched. You know, it's it's just a, an interesting time. It aired on Fox relatively recently, like oh, in the last fifteen years, and people and people people really liked it. I, I did not watch it, but I know people really liked it. But in a little bit of like a Hannibal situation, it was like critically acclaimed, but you know, criminally underwatched. So gotcha. it was canceled perhaps before its time. Uh, but yeah, they're going back to the well. So really interesting to see how that kind of develops. You, for more details, you can go to observer.com and check that out. Shameless plug. Can't can't hate me for um, it though. I mean, I'm not a horror guy. I would like to expand into that world. Um, yeah, I'm not a huge horror guy. Either. I feel like it's more of a group watch. Like I'm not just gonna like sit in bed and throw and just scare the shit out of myself. You know totally. what I mean? If I'm gonna do it, I, I want to be with a chick or like the squad. So at least someone else is in it with me. Um, I totally agree. That's, that's that said, so well said. This film to me is probably the archetype of horror films. Like this is synonymous with the genre so congrats to you on the scoop thank you buddy appreciate um, it i just want to you know we both aren't horror guys so let's delve into my common man lack of knowledge and you're uh in the biz in depth in the know could you explain to me how is it that blumhouse which is clearly a new thing is involved and how are they how do they have the rights to all of these iconic horror stories how did they get involved so blumhouse is absolutely killing it as the go-to micro budget high reward 
uh, production outfit. You know, they, they're behind like the Purge series, Insidious, Happy Death Day. They're also involved with uh, Get Out from Jordan Peele and Black Klansman, Spike Lee, Whip Visible Man. Yeah, exactly. So they, they have been killing it for, for like a decade. Now, the rights situation is something that is very interesting as well. Rights essentially have like a time limit on them. You, you can have them for like X amount of time unless you're like developing content around it. So te- occasionally, rights revert back to original Spider-Man. owners. Yeah, or, or they kind of hit the open market like a free agent. So I, I'm not privy necessarily to how Blumhouse has gotten so many rights. Because anytime Very there's, a, there's a big horror film coming or a remake of an iconic film, they're involved somehow every yeah. single time. And I've interviewed Jason Blum, who obviously heads out heads up Blumhouse and just a fascinating guy. And, and truly horror has become the best bang for your buck genre in all yes. of Hollywood. Yes. Bar none. It's so cheap to make. Yep. And it's relatively like box office proof. There's always a high floor. I will also point out that it has the potential to grow based on word of mouth perhaps more than any genre you hear something is scaring the pants off of people even if you're like us where it's like you're not a horror guy it's like fuck i gotta check that out yeah exactly it's not as reliant on opening weekend which basically every other genre is every other type of film i I remember get out the sort of slow building drum of like this is something different i mean i didn't see it until it it had been out for a month and a half but the hype was growing week in and week out i just want to put this out there randomly but jordan peele's two movies have grossed over 500 million worldwide on a combined budget of like 30 million yeah god bless that's amazing who would have thought who would have thought well all right so yeah, I mean, guys, go check out Observer.com to see that scoop and uh, stay tuned for more scoops from now, both Postgrepot and, and us. And do you have a timeline of when they're going to start to shoot? Or Unfortunately, no, because he has two Halloween sequels, one of which was delayed from this October to next October due to the pandemic. And he's got another one after that. I'm oh, not really? sure at what point he will be diving into this David Gordon Green but, uh, you know, it's on the docket. Probably and, not for a little bit. And to clear this up, it is not a remake. It's a sequel. So I had originally heard remake from sources. Then I heard sequel. Right now, I, I think it's going to be kind of a, a legacy sequel, as in, you know, a long-in-the-making return to this iconic franchise with perhaps some original character showing up. I don't know. I cannot confirm that. But uh, right now, I'm leaning sequel over remake. Fascinating. Okay. Sweet, man. Congrats. Hell of a way to end out the year. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. I appreciate that. You're, you're such a good hype man. <laughs> uh, what else is going on the newsy? Book of Boba. Oh, yes. Book of Boba Fett. Of course, coming December 2021, as we saw in the Mandalorian season finale post credit scene. If you guys haven't checked out our pod breaking down the season finale, you should. Because it's a really good, honestly, intelligent debate between me and Eric. And I think we come to some some common ground, even as we take opposing viewpoints. That was actually one of my favorite episodes. I'm not going to lie. I've spent the last few days thinking about this show. It hasn't really worn off yet. You know what? I think, I think it's so clear that season two is like a, a massive step up from season one. Even if I wasn't in love with everything in the finale, yeah, I and just, that's why it sticks with you. And uh, you know, as I said on that podcast, like I, I haven't spent the last few days thinking about Luke or Ahsoka. I've been thinking about 
Grogu and Din Djarin saying goodbye. And that right? is how you know you told a, a good story. So, yep. I mean, that, that emotional yeah. scene, it was just great. Uh, but so there was speculation once we saw that, like, okay, is this going to be an offshoot of I found that to be dumb. Let me cut in here. There were people thinking that Boba Fett was going to be Mando season three and sort of, as you and I have discussed, become a anthology series, not only in spirit, but in actual name. It was going to change up its name and have, you know, I guess it would be like a subtitle, but yeah, the suggestion that they would spend two seasons building up Din Djarin to not only become a 3D full-fledged character, but to show his fucking face, to think that they would leave you at an emotional high point of, I love this guy. This is my guy. To think that they would cut that off to tell us a story about what is really an anti-hero. He's not a hero. He is based he, on that. He was a bad dude in the original trilogy. Based on that post-credit scene alone, this isn't going to be some Mando-inspiring-esque tale. It's going to be something very different. So I guess the fault is on Disney for not making it clear what it was going to be. But if you looked at it from an objective point of view and all the money and time that has gone into building up Din Djarin, they were never going to toss him aside. Come on. You were absolutely on, right. 100% right. And they, John Favreau and company confirmed it. Boba, the book of Boba Fett will be a spinoff arriving in December 2021. Production will quickly move from Boba into Mando season three, which will uh, uh, come down the pipeline very quick after likely Q1 of 2022. So we know for a fact that this isn't some switcheroo. It's just another spinoff to join Ahsoka and Rangers of the New Republic. And conceivably, all four shows will culminate in a big Defenders-esque crossover at some point in the future. Probably Thrawn's live-action debut. Something connected to that, would you say? That's a good shout, but this struck me as a one-off. I don't think there's going to be a book of Boba Fett season two. What if it turns into a massive hit? I think at a one-off point, is a good idea. But... At this point, unless they fuck it up, everything they put out is going to be a hit. Seriously. That's a good point. They, they have a really high floor. Each so, so I personally, even though I said last week that season two and the finale did a lot for as a new Star Wars fan for me to understand sort of the the hype around Boba Fett. And that's still true, but I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I am itching for to go on adventure after adventure with what amounts to be a very monochromatic black and white, not villain, but he's definitely not a hero. So I think that could work really well in, in, in terms of a Obi-Wan-esque contained tale, but I don't see Boba Fett being stretched out into two, three years. I definitely see what you're saying, how it could be a Defenders type buildup where they each get their own show and then it, they, it all is like a crossover. Who knows if it's a film or perhaps a three part gigantic series? I mean, Disney is pretty much inventing new ways to tell <laughs> large scale stories at this point. The cross-platform um, blockbuster franchise, man. Yeah. So I, I, I guess my bottom line is while I am, look, man, I'll take it, but I don't see them, nor do I want them to put too much weight into this character more than they have. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm an original trilogy fan who never once understood the hype around Boba. Great character design, for sure. Looks badass, but was a terrible character who was bad at his job and was killed easily. So never really got it. Of course, Mando season two. I was like, well, now I get it. He's fucking badass and awesome. And I absolutely am excited to see more from him. But I do not need more than one season and then one appearance in whatever the crossover culmination event is. I, I just don't. I'm on record a million times, and this will come up later in our discussion today, uh, that I, I, I want to move out of this 60-year timeline that all Star Wars stories have been set in. So, you know, one and done with Boba, and then whatever the next development phase is, hopefully uh, some new cool stuff. Bottom line for us is what? Excited, don't need it to be a multi-season thing. And now, do you think they delve into his past? Because they made they made a specific point of saying that this show is going to take place, quote, within the timeline of the Mandalorian. But I, considering its title, the book of Boba Fett, you got to think that we're getting a, a tale of his life. If there aren't some flashbacks, especially to him clawing his way out of the Sarlacc pit, it's a missed opportunity. Or even filling the gaps between uh, Attack of the Clones and when he next pops back up. I mean, that's an entire timeline. There, he, he does appear in the animated series a few times. Okay. A handful of times, actually. He does appear in the animated series and he rubs me the wrong way because he's kind of this annoying, like, emo kid. But I, I get what they're trying to do. You know, it's not a, it's not a huge problem. I'm just like, eh, young Boba. Eh. Gotcha. And one last thing that I point out, and I'm going to fuck up her name, Lang Meng Wan. Do you know how to say it? I don't know how to pronounce her real name, but I know Fennec. Fennec, she is, <laughs> that woman is 57 years old. Yeah, she looks wow. absolutely phenomenal. Incredible. Incredible. Good for her. That's fucking awesome. She probably is from a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, looking seriously. that amazing at that age. She looks like she's 37. That's unbelievable. It's truly. Um, all Great right. actress. But, and now, so this is going to come out, I think, December Christmas time, 2021. Yeah. And then Mando season three. I don't know, maybe February 22, perhaps, around I think that, that time. that makes sense, yeah. All right. All right. Next order of business, Eric. As seems to be always the case over the last 20, 30 years, MGM is once again up for sale. Now, for those of you that don't know, MGM Studios is probably most known for being the kind of distributor of the James Bond series. Uh, you know, they obviously Rocky have other stuff. as well. Yeah, they got, they got the Rocky and Creed franchise. It's they that Roaring Lion. Yeah, <sighs> Roaring Which Lion. Which I've exactly. always... I don't know why it's always in my head just been burned. It's like, that's the symbol of like old school Hollywood. Yeah. MGM back in the day was, was way bigger than it is now. Yeah. So they are up for sale and this is a potentially interesting development in entertainment today because merger and acquisition consolidation has become kind of all the rage over the last five years, but this could, this could be somewhat of a game changer uh, depending on who gets them. Now, we know for a fact, because it's been reported, that Apple and Netflix held buyout talks with MGM back in January. But at the same time, Apple is historically averse to major outside acquisitions. Their biggest was Beats by Dre for $3 billion, and MGM has a market value of around $5.5 billion. Uh, Netflix has never in their history really made a material acquisition of, of great consequence. Again, it doesn't mean it won't happen. It just means for both of these companies, it's it's not really in their track record at all. So that's a little curious. Uh, Disney and NBC Universal are also options. 
but both are still integrating major acquisitions from the last two years in Fox and Sky, respectively. I sincerely doubt that Warner Media is going to be in the hunt since AT&T is bogged down by massive debt. So it's going to be very interesting to see who comes out with this library. Like we mentioned before, Rocky and Creed franchises, they've got, you know, a, a certain ownership of the James Bond franchise, The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu, Fargo on FX, Vikings on the History Channel, The Voice, other really popular unscripted TV and cable network epics. So it's not nothing, MGM. So this could be a, a nice little arms race for Hollywood that we see develop over the next few uh, weeks and months. Do you see it being sold? Yeah, it's, it's always in the process of being sold. Uh, and a current contemporary sale of MGM has been in the works for a while. Their head honcho, Michael DeLuca, has basically been kind of on a spending spree and of being really aggressive over the last year or so basically positioning them for a sale and no time to die's frequent release delays has really thrown a wrench into their sale prospects and their yeah. whole plan yeah. so it's going to be really interesting to play out and potentially a very big development in the streaming wars where do you think it'll go I think at the end of the day, Apple is going to buy either MGM or Lionsgate, one of the two, at some point in the future because they need they need a library to compete. And they've shown with Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's upcoming $200 million Western, that they're willing to partner with traditional studios for global wide exclusive theatrical releases as long as it's dubbed an Apple original and as long as it goes to Apple TV Plus after it's done playing in theaters. So that could work for the James Bond franchise big time. Now, and then last thing, do we think that this brings on the James Bond cinematic universe? You know, the know. first thought, the first thought that popped in my head was, well, I'm going to see a crime drama about MI6, about the day-to-day -day dealings of MI6, where James Bond pops up at the end of season two, and everyone's <laughs> like, oh, sick, James Bond is here. You know, like, that is unfortunately where my brain immediately went to once I heard this news, is we're going to be getting two Bond tangent projects per year now, if it gets sold. I, it's one of two things, either one, it's inevitable and it has to happen or two, despite rumblings and rumors for literally decades of expanding the James Bond universe, it's never actually happened. So maybe it just simply is a prestige big screen series. I don't know. Obviously it's going to be one of the two, which is not exactly a hot take. And I imagine whoever buys it, I mean, like they're not going to cast this the new bond until they're until it's so sold, whoever buys it, is, it does guess. not have necessarily like full control over the james bond series james bond first and foremost belongs to eon productions which is run by the broccoli's who are the longtime rights owners and producers they partner with mgm and then mgm partners with like bigger studios like sony like universal to distribute these movies worldwide so the rights ownership is, is a little complicated and, and whatnot but Certainly, you know, if Apple's shelling out $5.5 billion for MGM, they're going to want some input. That doesn't mean they have final say. Barbara Broccoli and Eon will always have final say on, like, who's cast and, like, okay. what, what the deal is. But still, you know, it's, it's a feather in the cap for sure. Yeah. All right, and last order of business before we, we hop into our two main topics. Uh, Eric and I have both seen Wonder Woman 1984. We are going to do a, a, its own podcast on it since it is – this, you know, obviously the massive blockbuster of the holiday season. Uh, Eric, <laughs> how do I put this uh, diplomatically? 
We have thoughts. Eric and I both have thoughts. Yeah, if I had to go with a one-line review summary of my thoughts that, that are going to come in this full podcast, it'd be, damn. That's that's a pretty good. Just damn. We don't want to spoil <laughs> it now because obviously yeah. uh, it doesn't come out at the time of this taping for three more days. We will record the podcast on the 25th or 6th and try and drop it as soon as possible. Uh, listen, I don't want to get too much into it because I want the people to, to have and look, something. At to, the time to... of, of this taping, it currently still has a like an 80-ish percent. On yeah, we're more so in the minority. Tomatoes. Yes. <laughs> and if you do want to hear more of our expanded thoughts before the podcast, Eric has a great piece up on Bro Bible right now that you can check out. My piece is, is more complimentary because I focus on the thing I did like about Wonder Woman. That's coming on Christmas Day uh, at Observer. So, you know. There's some complimentary content coming your way, guys. For sure, for sure. <laughs> now let's move on to another big holiday release, Eric, and that is Netflix's The Midnight Sky. This is Ether. Does any one copy? We're not receiving anything. That puts our last contact with Mission Control at... Three weeks. Why is it so quiet? That's Ether. It's a... Spaceship that we hoped would be our future. I have to warn them about the conditions on Earth. I don't know all the details. It started with a mistake. Starring and directed by George Clooney. Big budget, got some got some sci-fi spectacle, so kind of a big deal. And one thing I was particularly interested to note going into this film is that George Clooney, for absolute for how big of an absolute stud that man is, for how much I love him in every movie, for how, for how much I love him as like a person, he was in need of a directorial hit because he hasn't really put out a, a slam dunk winner as a director since 2011's uh, The Ides of March. Since then, it's been The Monuments Men, which was meh. I haven't even seen that, which is a bummer because the the cast of that film is through the roof. Yeah, it's all star. It's just but the reviews were so dire that I I I didn't even bother. Suburbicon was a huge flop. Suburbicon, I I I didn't think was that bad though. I I don't think it was that bad. It's got a script by the Coen Brothers, so that was kind of the saving grace. But I I didn't love it. But and then Catch Twenty Two, the miniseries on Hulu, which was big budget, was meant to kind of be this kind of big prestige programming for them, and really. Big nobody shrug cared. of indifference. Yeah. yeah, nobody cared. So, you know, he he needed a big one. Eric, you and I have slightly differing takes. I'm, let, let's hear let's hear you you because you're the First, more positive one. Let me say that you make a great point, right? Like it, it sort of goes under the radar that in the last ten years he's helmed four films. That's a pretty good output. Yet, I mean, look, since 2008, he's put out five films. Yeah, that's pretty standard output from a director he's which I sort of which i sort of like low-key didn't really realize he's like a filmmaker right exactly like i didn't realize that and his last film which again didn't do well didn't get great reviews but i watched with suburbicon with my mom and dad and stuff and we enjoyed it look man a very tough part for me in film critiquing which i'm newer to than you are is Keeping my confirmation bias at bay. Um, That's that's an interesting point. In the sense that when something is in my zone, you know, like, you know me, I am a sucker for 
overtly emotional, ruminative sci-fi. Yeah. Right? Grand scores, stunning scene, like scenic uh, shots. Like that is up my alley. So when you get an A-lister like George directing, starring a film in this genre with a trailer that I thought was like, I'm like, this is my movie. Really good trailer. Its title is fucking sweet. The Midnight Sky. Like, everything about it was your boy. (laughs) Like, like they couldn't have... They couldn't have packaged and sold a film that I could be more hyped for, right? So I I have to go into these things consciously aware of... You have to look at this from from an objective point of view and ignore how much you want to like it which is what I just did last night with Wonder Woman. You know, I went into that thinking, this is going to be fucking sweet, man. Wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So with this, there was a part of me that, yes, I was super, super pumped. Even keeping that in check, I thought that this was sort of a throwback to sci-fis of the late 90s, early 2000s, where... They just put a, a bunch of big stars and sent it to space. Like, that was one of my favorite genres growing up. You see them all but the most time. of the movie is not set in space. Yeah, yeah, but space is more of a vibe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what that means, but I respect it. And, and everyone at home, you know, love it or hate it, Eric wrote a great review for Bro Bible that you guys should check out. We're just shameless plugging left and right. Might um, as well. <laughs> we only started this podcast to drive clicks to our website. <laughs> That's not true. Don't, don't, don't take that as truth, people. It's 5% true for me. Uh, yeah, oh, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Five, <laughs> five sounds low. You uh, tell him, Eric. My, my bottom line point before you give your bottom line point and then we you know get into the ins and outs of the film is that critics and fans, we wax lyrical about the need for original non-franchise projects with big budgets and big stars. And at the end of the day, that's what this film is. Good cast. Decent writing. Not great. Uh, the plot twists nor the character developments are out of this world, but it's solid. And in doing so, it at the same time feels like a Netflix film. Something that I probably wouldn't go out or I would go out and see, but that the average person probably wouldn't go out and see. So it's doing two things at once. It feels new and old at the same time. It reminded me of sci-fi from a time gone by where they would just get a bunch of famous people and spend a lot of money on going to space. And that worked for me, period, the end. Even though I am aware of its averageness, that's weirdly what I liked about it. I think your point about it feeling both like a Netflix movie and both like something you might've seen 15, 20 years ago is really cool. That's a great point that I really didn't consider. And perhaps if I rewatch it in the near future, I might, I might feel that and, and, and appreciate it a little bit more. So I, I thank you for expanding my horizons a little bit, Eric, because that was a great point. Thank you. Really was my like, my main takeaway was you wouldn't see this in theaters. Ed Astra didn't do well. And I'm sure this would have gone down the same fate. But if you think about the films that we grew up with, Event Horizon, Deep Impact, Armageddon. Throwbacks. This is of that vein. You know, you catch this TNT AMC Saturday at four o'clock. That's this movie, man. 
for sure. That, that's the general vibe. And I do respect that. I like that you're calling out. I also want to point out for everybody at home that this movie co-stars Felicity Jones, which is another good reason why we're pairing it with our Rogue One conversation. I didn't even think about that. Great call. Yeah, I, I thought that's kind of why we were doing it. There were movies of the same. You know, it doesn't matter. Forget that. <laughs> Um, listen, I, I want to start off my kind of overview with saying I did not think this was a bad movie by any stretch. I think it's a perfectly watchable movie. I do think, however, that it's mediocre and has a poorly thought out ending overall. That doesn't mean you shouldn't watch it because I would say, hey, if you guys are on break, you know, you're at home with your parents celebrating the holidays. This is a perfect thing to throw on at like 830 while you all sip some wine and are really full from Christmas dinner. Like for sure. Uh, the scale of the movie, first of all is quite beautiful and quite high level throughout, but it is not matched in my opinion by the dramatic kind of mechanics at hand. Uh, for those that don't know, we probably should have said this up top, the Midnight Sky essentially follows Earth as an ecological cataclysmic event is basically setting up the end of the world in the next coming few weeks. And George Clooney plays a scientist at a uh, Arctic observatory who's trying to warn returning astronauts not to come back. And I, I think... And now, wait. Now that you've dropped the plot, let me just say here. Spoiler warning. This is okay. your warning. We will at some point discuss the end of this film. So if you haven't seen this, skip ahead to Rogue One because we are about to spoil. I'm glad you said that because I had non-spoiler comments and spoiler comments in my in my notes for this pod. <laughs> well, let's not drop them yet. I'm just saying at this point, yeah, we yeah. are no longer liable for you being spoiled because I have exactly. officially warned you. So to me here in the midnight sky, the apocalypse has never felt as ho-hum as it does here. It's very, by the way, by the numbers, side plot point of the whole of the whole thing which I, I didn't like. I would have liked to kind of feel the terror and horror and the collapse of society a little bit more. Uh, I really, really like that the film is more so about one man's regrets over missed opportunities in life than it is about the end of the world, for sure. Yep. But the limited twists that this movie ultimately results in are predictable and really ineffective to me. And so that kind of kept it from fulfilling its potential. Uh, we can we can get into spoilers when you want because then I have I have further comments that I really paint my opinion of this film. So bottom line is I think it's mediocre, it's watchable, but I wanted more. You know what I mean? See, I'm gonna counter that where I think the choice to not really delve into what was wrong with the world and sort of keep that a mystery helps because a it adds a sort of impending you know. At the top of the show, we just talked about horror films. Horror films are a lot scarier before you actually see the monster. What's scary is the idea of it, right? So because, as you just said, this is ultimately a character film. It's not about sort of the sci-fi set pieces. It's about a, a dying man with everything within him trying to give the end of his life some semblance of purpose and at the same time, living, reliving all of his regrets, I thought the choice to not flesh out the sci-fi part of this tale helped boost what I thought was its strength. And that was the human drama. Now, I understand what you mean. And I would agree 100%, if not 
for the ultimate twists and turns of the film that it takes. Last spoiler warning, because now I'm getting into it, you guys. Okay, so what happens in the film is that ecological disaster is laying waste to humanity. They're all kind of fleeing underground, which is explicitly said in the movie is only a temporary solution. And George Clooney, who has terminal cancer and is going through blood transfusions to keep himself alive for a little bit longer, is going to stay at the observatory by himself because, you know, he's a dead man walking, essentially. So he might as well stay there. Uh, While he is there, he discovers a young girl, seven, eight years old, who has been left behind. And through flashbacks of his life, we learn that, you know, he he previously had a, a wife. He had a daughter. He was an absentee father completely and broke up with his his wife because he's always been committed to his science first. And what he did was discover a planet, a moon of Jupiter or something like that, that could potentially support human life. And that is where the astronauts are coming home from, that expedition. So it's kind of his life's work that is happening in conjunction with the end of the world. Now, spoiler, 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 spoiler. The second that the flashback scene showed him talking to his ex-wife and his toddler daughter run across frame and the ex-wife tell him that she has no idea who he is. I looked at my turn to my mom who I was watching with and I said, I guarantee that Felicity Jones, one of the astronauts returning home is his, do- is his adult daughter. I'll put any amount of money on it. I was 100% accurate. Uh, that was extremely predictable. I'm also not a fan of the other twist, which was his harrowing journey throughout the film is to get to another observatory that has a more powerful signal that he can reach the astronauts to tell them to not come home. He brings the little girl that he discovers at his observatory with him because she's a little girl and she'll die on her own. And they have to brave the elements. They have to fight through, you know, sinking into the ice. They have to fight through the snowstorms. They have to they have to traverse miles and miles of Arctic land to get there. And at the end of the movie, we find out that that was actually his childhood daughter, childhood Felicity Jones, and it was all in his head. A conceit that I absolutely hate, a conceit that I think is overwrought and overused in pop culture today. Uh, I understand that the little girl is a manifestation of his regret. But by revealing that she didn't exist, the emotional bond they form on this journey and the life or death stakes that we see and all the lengths he goes to to protect her are completely undone. And in doing so, it becomes this this ill-advised mulligan that he gets to have for being an absentee father. And I think it, it falls short and could have been replaced by a genuine conversation with adult Felicity Jones, who he does talk to but doesn't really have any significant exchanges with or any other manner of storytelling that could have perhaps accomplished the same feat. So Eric, your original point that uh, they didn't delve into the sci-fi elements too much. I agree. That was good. If the emotional heft had actually landed. And I think because of these twists and turns, it doesn't, it undercuts a lot of the drama that we previously saw and makes you rethink the film in a more negative light. That is my opinion. Again, I want to reiterate, I still think this is a watchable movie. This is, there's far worse movies out there. So I do agree with you that their over-reliance on formulaic storytelling and tropes is a lot, right? The mute lost child, the hopeless alcoholic, the pregnant voyager, 
These are all tropes that we've seen and we know. So I am with you on that. I'll also complain that despite the incredible cast, outside of George, they're not really given much to do. There's thin writing. There's very thin character development. If this film does compete at the Oscars, and I very well think it could in like, you know, on the technical side, it wouldn't surprise me, given it's such a down year, I could see George flirting in the best supporting. But he's the lead here. Is he though? I mean, well, yes, he is, but he's not in it enough to what I would call a lead role. He's in almost every frame. No, he's not. He's George Clooney in the movie. What are you talking about? I remember being like, George is, I haven't seen George in a while. There's a couple flashbacks and there's a couple, you know, shifts to the, the space, space. A- astronauts, but he, he's in the, in the movie for like the whole time. He's dead. He would definitely be put in the lead. I'd be shocked if he was put in best, best supporting. Interesting. Well, point being is I do think that George does some good, yes. strong work here. I agree that he gives a haunted, exhausted performance in a very good way. He, yes. He's a fucking man. I love George Clooney. Definitely one of my bro crushes. And I will agree that the ending was abrupt. That was my number one feeling, that the third act, which I thought actually, and this is where we'll split, and I think that most fans will split. I thought the third act and the ending and the twist raised the film to make it something more because I was oblivious, Brandon. I did not see it coming. I did not. And I should have. And in hindsight, it's so obvious that I'm embarrassed that I'm almost embarrassed that I didn't notice, but I was, but that's kind of a good thing, right? I was, I was in the thick of it. Like I wasn't thinking about like the inner workings of the film. I was, but to my defense, I was, it wasn't like I was analyzing as I was watching. It was just so obvious and blatant to me. But again, I've seen a bajillion movies that I'm like conditioned to see anything that's even remotely expected. That's fair. But for me, I didn't see the twist at all. And afterwards it put everything else into place. It made it not a story of survival, but a story of regret and purpose and that that shifting focus thematically i did like that it is a story of regret not about space travel exactly so and that is that's my shit man like that is my shit trojan horsing some of the grandest human feelings through the guise of a journey into the unknown is my favorite thing i love that and i thought that this twist and you make a great point if you see it coming, it will undercut everything that follows. But if you're a dumbass like me and you don't see it coming, I think it helps. I thought it really struck a emotional chord with me because you got to assume that George knows that she's not there. Like he's just using that as something to work towards, something to cling to. He doesn't actually think that there's this girl. I, I think that it's all just his brain creating a driving force for him to do what he needs to do. Potentially. And and I will say to your point just now, the best science fiction uses otherworldly elements to tell simple stories about the basic human condition. It is not about the space. It is not about the aliens. It is not about the fantasy magic wands or anything. It is about the people. And your Trojan horsing comment is, I think, indicative of the heights of the science fiction drama that are about human beings and not whatever 
out otherworldly out there elements might be introduced. And I love that, you know, that's why I love like Arrival and, and things of that nature, really grounded sci-fi. Which is what I think this kind of is, you know, uh, while I enjoy- It's, it's the, definitely grounded, that's for sure. It's clearly sci-fi. While I enjoy that one big set piece that is pretty much status quo for every space film, you know, that sort of, oh, we got to go fix something on the ship. Oh no, it's going wrong. Like that's in every space film of all time. But that's status quo, right? Like they got to put that shit- in there and considering that this is a netflix film i didn't think it was half bad i also think that the death scene of that chick on, on the flight was pretty gnarly the bait and switch of her coming off the high of not just her fate her first spacewalk but surviving her first walk and the adrenaline subduing and her being like i'm gonna have a drink no i'm gonna have two drinks and then that subverting into fear and the acknowledgement that I'm about to die, that was a devastating scene. And even though it's something we've seen before, the fact that they found a way to put a new twist on it with the way that sort of the blood w- was used, that they was deserve fact, credit yeah. for that. I, I didn't think like the character, like I didn't care about this character that has had two lines. Of course. So really, you know, your subversion point is a good point. It just didn't affect me emotionally. But the gross out of this pooling blood in zero gravity was was very good. Very good. And uh, you make a great point. I would have preferred them kill off one of the big stars that would have made for a more dramatic scene. But for a underdeveloped character who we didn't care about, I thought that they did very well to wring every ounce of tension from that scene. Good gross out death. Now, speaking of character deaths, again, spoiler, 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 spoiler. The end of this film has Felicity Jones and her 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 hubby slash baby daddy, David Oluwey. I apologize. I know I'm butchering his last name, but he's a very talented actor who's been in a million things. Uh, they have them returning to the habitable moon or planet around Jupiter uh, to, you know, to live the rest of their lives. But my thinking was here, what the fuck? Two people, a pregnant woman, three people, a, a, you know, a pregnant woman and her, and, her, and her unborn child and her husband cannot repopulate the human race. We know that everybody on earth is going to die. They've explicitly said that any, you know, underground safe havens are temporary. So the movie ends basically saying that the human race ends, which was hugely depressing. And they also point out that there's nobody else out there in space, yeah. right? I, I can't remember that. And I'm not, I am not saying that the ending is, is good or bad in terms of this, saying is, the human it race. Is a bummer. It, but it is certainly a bummer. And certainly um, that, that is why I texted you yesterday partly why I, I would have liked a little bit more on the new planet, right. which is first of all, just interesting sci-fi ground in and of itself. And two, because specifically the ending says like, everybody's fucked. We're going to go back to this planet and they're going to have, I don't know, X amount of years before the human race is kaput. That's a choice. Yeah, I, I hadn't really thought about that, that the fact that, see, that's where you and I sort of split ways is I'm not thinking of a film past where the film ends. Like I'm not concerned with where they go from here. So, but isn't that part of the fun with like characters you like or concepts you really like? I maybe love to for play you, around. but I, 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 to me, it the story ends where the film does. So for all I know, they could 
something amazing could happen and there could, you know, the, oh, we're saved. I don't really care. You know, that, that, that to me, I'm not going to hold the way it positions itself for a non-existent future against it. Well, I'm not holding it against it. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that is a choice that is worth discussing. I will say it was abrupt. They should have ended with the Clooney skyline shot as opposed to just the two of them sitting at their desk typing away quietly with the credits popping up. I thought that was very, very strange, especially as in a, in a, in a genre as epic and grand as space. To have it end as abruptly and quietly as it did, coming off a final few moments that, for me, really tied up the film well, the actual ending shot, incredibly weak. I just think it's interesting because one of my favorite things about entertainment and specifically the sci-fi genre is I love the theorization. I love coming up with like, you know, essays that nobody is paying me or telling me to do, but it's just my own thinking and theories and rapid, rampant speculation and texting my brother being like, what about this? And that, that, that's well, if there was going to be a, if there was going to be a midnight sky too, I would, you know, <laughs> fair, fair, but yeah, it, I get it. So let's, uh, let's give our bottom lines here. I think that as I said, said at the top, I think it's simultaneous, Spontaneous modernness combined with its like throwback style of being a self-contained original. All right, it's not original, but it's not a franchise IP yeah, type I think, deal. I'm pretty sure it's based on a book or something, which it, means we yeah. haven't. It's new to screen. That's exactly. the term that uh, Scott Mendelson uses. At right. Forward. So new to screen, sci-fi, big stars, big budget, decent story, solid twist. To me, this is the epitome of a film from an era of sci-fi and film as a whole that I love, and we need more like this. So I am giving it three and a half out of five stars. I'm going to say basically what I've said. Enjoyed it overall, but mediocre film with a, with a terrible ending in my opinion. But, but watchable. It's watchable. I think particularly as a holiday release for all of you guys are sitting at home with your families, like, you know, we are doing nothing, you know, sure. I, I give it a C minus, which well, I, I don't know why I did a different scale than you did. You, you put in our notes, how much does a film like this move the needle? Yes. For... And I, and I love your response in our outline notes. Go ahead. Now you, you want to tell them? Well, so uh, that's a great point. And I think that that's sort of what I mean when I say this is a Netflix film. It's not something that large groups would go out and see, but because they could just toss it on at home, they might. So pretty much at the same time that B and I made the outline for this podcast, I get a text from my dad and I could guarantee he saw the commercial during Monday night football. And that's the only reason he knew, quote, we should watch that new Clooney space movie Wednesday night. Super excited and reaching my. This is an adorable text. He put in a, he put in a screenshot into our outline. It just made me smile. Reaching my 60 year old dad is what Netflix is ultimately have been trying to do with their films this whole time. That is to me moving the needle. So the fact that I got a text from my dad suggests that yes, it will. 
And I agree because five minutes before we hopped on the microphone, my significantly older father said, I'm going to watch the George Clooney Midnight Sky movie on a Wednesday or whenever it came out. So clearly, you know, it's permeating the, the old dad culture. Dads is- love Clooney. And that's what I'm saying, right? That's why it reminds me of like the late 90s sort of this era of more simplistic filmmaking where it's all we need is sci-fi and Big stars and these morons will come watch it. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, that's fair. And I no, again, for we, us, it's we need a connected universe and cameos and post credit scene. My dad's like George Clooney in space. I'm down. That's did all you, it took. Did you break his heart that he never leaves Earth? No, I was just like, let's go. I'm hyped. <laughs> did you tell I'm him excited. that you had seen it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, but, yeah. he, but you said you'll watch it again. Of course, of course. Uh, you're a good son. I mean, Guys, give plus. it up for Eric. Give him, give him credit on Twitter for being a good son. All right. As, as I said, this is this is my jam. Like this yeah. sort of hearty sci-fi is, you know, the best. All right, let's move on to our second Felicity Jones. Speaking project of, of hearty sci-fi, Rogue One. There's a 97.6% chance of failure. He means well. This is our chance to make a real difference. Are you with me? Story. We're basically concluding, bookending our two-month-long Star Wars Rewind slash Mando Palooza, which has just been a delight for me because I fucking love Star Wars. Star Wars is my Batman, which is Eric's, you know, Star Wars. It's <laughs> wow. Yeah, well it's- said, Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> it's an inception loop of nerdiness, and uh, I can't believe any girls agree to go on dates with us. I will tell you this, that I have not once brought up my nerd podcast on a single date. I can promise you that. I will tell you this. I have made the mistake of going too nerdy too quickly with several girls. Uh, it has cost hey, me. It has hey. cost me. Uh, so I'm thinking we have a little bit of a, a general conversation about Rogue One, and then we can jump into our patented classic awards and categories. How does that sound to you, Eric? Dude, I've been training for this my whole life. <laughs> I, I'm glad too because we're both pretty much united on, it's all on Rogue One. Uh, well, I want to say united when we started our Star Wars month turned into two months. You were on record as saying that The Force Awakens was your number one Disney Star Wars film. And through months of effort and work and blood, sweat, and tears, I've slowly started to shift your feelings about that towards Rogue One. But I will also say that I was on record as saying Force Awakens was 1A and Rogue One was 1B. So it wasn't like there was a huge gap, but you're right. Were you? you, Did you say that? Are you sure? Yeah, 100%. Because, and you can look through the tweets before we ever started this podcast. I've always put Force Awakens and Rogue One either on the same level or like one right after the other. It's always been very close. But you are the catalyst for me, like really revisiting it and being like, damn, this is better. (laughs) Hell yeah. So I, I thought it would be helpful because we're basically about to spend the next 40 minutes talking about how much we love it to start with the negatives first. I thought that might be helpful to kind of balance out the conversation. 
And for me, my negatives with Rogue One, which are hard to find, but I would say there are moments when the significant behind the scenes drama, which included essentially sidelining director Gareth Edwards for Tony Gilroy are clear. I I think there are moments where there's kind of this aimless story meandering specifically with Bodhi and the mind reading alien monster. And the fact that Bodhi has so many stepping stones just to get to saw it's a very inefficient subplot for him. Uh, I think the third act also occasionally feels a bit stitched together, which makes sense because it was absolutely completely reshot, re-edited director changes. So I, I think there are just these specific pockets within the movie that feel like they either belong to a different worse movie or aren't living up to their inherent potential. That's, that's really it. And I'm, that's kind of a minority nitpick of like three, four scenes tops in the whole movie. And even that might be pushing it. So eh, those were the negatives I could like articulate. First of all, I just looked up Tony Gilroy. What the fuck? <laughs> what do you mean? Like, I didn't know that they booted Gareth Edwards for so him. It, it was a similar situation to what happened with Phil Lord and Chris Miller on Solo. They went out to Gareth Evans and were like, hey, man, we're sidelining you. Either accept it. This is all behind the scenes. This is not official. But they're, they're like, you know, we are going to sideline you for Tony Gilroy, who is going to overlook all of the reshoots. And he accepted Phil Lord and Chris Miller were brought with a similar situation. Like, Hey, we want changes. We want this. We want that. And they were like, no. And they got fired. So it was like, you had a choice to make neither of which is wrong. I I don't want to say either of which is wrong because Gareth Evans is a talented director. I think there's a lot in Godzilla that I really like. And the word was that rogue one was too dark, right? There, there was conflicting reports. I, I don't know if it was too dark or not. Ultimately, it does still have a dark ending. I don't know whose original idea that was, but I will say that uh, Gareth Evans, you know, the, the, the pre-release story made this movie sound like a fucking mess. And there was a chance that it was going to be like a terrible film. And when I put out in a tweet saying that we're going to talk about this film... I called it a miracle because the fact that it is as good as it is, despite what you just said, and also given the context of how royally Disney has fucked Star Wars since, it's pretty I don't don't necessarily want to be on record with that statement because I'm a little bit cleaner than everybody. I mean, a little bit more forgiving than everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I just think that the fact that, you know, I talk about a lot when it comes to the OG films that had one little thing been out of place, the whole thing could have collapsed onto itself. And that's sort of the case with this. They had so many moving parts and conflicting goals and visions that the fact that it turned out not only as passable, but a film that Rips. People like me could make a genuine case for being my Star War- my favorite Star Wars film of all time and not get laughed out of the room is amazing. Um, but we're starting with the bad points. My only complaint about this film is its score, which oh, interesting, which is very clearly not John Williams. I think that there are moments where the score doesn't match up with the tone, where it doesn't do justice to the epicness that the scene 
deserves. Does any specific example pop out in your mind? Uh, the main theme. It's hard to compare to the iconic Star Wars. Of course, theme. of course, and that's probably the problem. But that is my one complaint because I Fair. don't notice any sort of Frankenstein esque traits. I think the pacing is immaculate. There's not a single down. Oh, I could go pee right now. Scene in the entire film. It's two hours ish long, which is mwah, chef's kiss. Beautiful. I think Rise of Skywalker pushed two thirty. I don't so, understand this recent trend of every blockbuster has to be like two thirty plus. What absurd. happened to like the the ninety minute? You know, just let's just get to the meat and potatoes, because baby. They're doing so much now. We post credit scenes and cameos and. Building up spinoffs and all that. So I'll get into the good next. But my one major complaint is its score. I think that it is, while it does well to differentiate itself from the main Star Wars films, because at the time, this was the first non-Skywalker Star Wars film. So they had to really go out of their way to prove that, hey, this is going to be something different. And they largely succeeded, except for its score. Yeah, this is the first spinoff, which was... That's listen, a lot of pressure, man. That's yeah, no fucking joke. Huge like, pressure. Yeah. And yeah. I'm still on record as saying, I still think the a Star Wars story anthology standalone concept can work, even if Solo was a bomb and lost $100 million. I still think, in general... That, that concept could work. Well, here's what I pointed out in our notes. Rogue One is a, a film about a story. Solo was a film about a character. And with a pre-established character comes audiences' opinions and feelings about him. So, in a way, the new Han Solo was never going to live up to the old one. Its ceiling was built in. So, that, on top of when it was released and how often Disney had put out Star Wars films at that point, there was a lot that went wrong at that time. But I agree with you to the extent that before these all came out, in theory, I was more hyped for these sort of spinoff tales. You put out a great tweet today how you would love to see an R-rated oh, yes. Darth Vader film where he's hunting down Jedi. Like, dude. After the Order 66, the ones who survived. <laughs> like, it's never going to happen, I know. But I, I, and I'm the guy who is always saying, like, oh, can Star Wars please move out of the 60 year timeline? I'm so bored. But if they did that, which they're never going to do, I would, I pay $100 to see that in, in theaters. So on down. paper, I really like the idea. Like, look, do you know how Joker is not within the DCEU yeah. and it's its own spinoff tale. Worlds. Applying that to Star Wars would have been fucking sweet. Cherry picking random moments and stories as opposed to sagas and sprawling five, ten year tales. Micro specific Star Wars moments. That idea to me was very cool. Especially after how good this was. Seriously. And it, I think it's a shame that that has now been shuttered because of well, Solo. Shuttered? What do you mean? That's what they're doing now. They've well, since gone they, back to that. No, I mean, they've moved all of their Star Wars stories, concepts to T, to Disney Plus. And I still Is think that it a problem. Worked. I uh, I love TV. I'll probably always be a film first guy. And I think a lot of these concepts still could have worked as blockbusters. Mandalorian as a film? 
I'm not necessarily saying Mandalorian, but like a, okay. a lot of these, you know, Mandalorian kind of borrowed elements from James Mangold's Boba Fett. Now the Boba Fett spinoff is is officially not a movie. It's a TV show. So, you know, I just think these these concepts and the concept, like we said, of a Star Wars story, anthology stories could have worked. And I want to say one, I agree completely with what you said about the built-in ceiling about Solo. I think it's a phenomenal point that hasn't been talked about enough. And two, not a lot of Star Wars fans were necessarily clamoring for I was not. Solo. Yeah, not a lot were. I mean, he's an iconic character, but I don't think people were necessarily necessarily thinking, I want another guy taking on this iconic role. So that, that also hurt. Also, where I think that the choice to not cast a big star worked in Rogue One. I think that's what bit them in the ass for Solo because had they casted somebody who was really buzzing at the time, it would have been a much bigger deal than them casting a guy who, except for a show on Peacock, which I'm sure is fucking awful, hasn't done much sense. Uh, you know what? I will say I don't think it was Alden Einreich's fault at all. Uh, no, I'm not I saying it's his fault, but it's just saying from the point of view of the consumer. I, yeah, I mean, I think that's true. I think he was he was perfectly fine as Han Solo. Definitely not his fault. And then we're getting more niche here. I'm not even remotely saying that the general audiences have seen this. I thought he was f- straight up fantastic in Hail Caesar, in which he's hysterical in that movie from the Coen brothers. So, you know, he, he was a guy I was certainly perfectly fine with. It just... You know, that, that's a character that's hard to kind of reboot as a new other young guy. But let's get back to Rogue One now that we've kind of fleshed out a little bit of our negatives. Let's just talk about it overall, our positives. I love that Rogue One was kind of like Star Wars, the Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels in that it is the best example of a filling in the gaps story in the Star Wars universe. It is so clever in its central conceit relying on 40-year-old Star Wars history in order to tell a strikingly different story in terms of focus, narrative, tone, and timber, and then still taking place like before New Hope, but telling an entirely different type of story. Uh, I think the film counts on its audience at least being vaguely familiar with what's to come in this saga while at the same time delivering an extremely fresh start for Star Wars blockbusters. Uh, the original trilogy are obviously these fantastical space operas and traditional heroes journeys with kid-friendly sensibilities and kind of straightforward action. Rogue One is a grounded, gritty, boots-on-the-ground war movie populated by decimated planets and downtrodden heroes questioning everything they've ever fought for. It is so impressive so impressive. And one more in the Callan, Colin Cowherd style of repeating everything you say. So impressive that Rogue One could balance being a filling in the gap story in which you need to be familiar with Star Wars while also being the first ever Star Wars film that doesn't feel like Star Wars in a good way. Well, 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 well. It's about time. Welcome to the light, my friend. You say that as if I didn't like Rogue I One. I just think, no, no, no. I just think that. Because And then a few weeks ago, Rogue One trended, and we talked about it on the, this podcast. I guess I'm just, I'm glad that it feels like the rest of the Star Wars world is catching up to a Rogue One take that I've had, Brandon, since it came out. Like, I am, 
I am the builder of this arc. This is Eric's Rogue One arc, and I am all allowing you on board. <laughs> I will absolutely listen. I loved it when it came out. All right, I saw it twice within its first week of release. And again, I have said from the beginning that I, like, this is like a top four or five Star Wars, you know, from from the jump for me. But I will absolutely give Eric Italiano credit for being like day one Star Wars fiend of it. Uh, it came out in 2016, about a year, maybe eight months after I, Eric and I first met and started working together at our previous job. And like, you know, very early in our friendship, he was like, yo, Rogue One's the best Star Wars movie. I can like vouch for that years ago. Now we are here. Wow. What a road. Um, so <laughs> what a journey, my friend. So what an endeavor. Let me, before I get into the themes, which I think are what makes this film as strong as it is, let me get into its actual content. Content wise, it's a war film and a spy film. That's just wearing Star Wars clothes. You know, it doesn't well feel like a Star Wars film pretending to be a war film. Uh-uh-uh. It feels like a war film. For the first time, the rebellions, advances, and schemes feel like actual military movements. I like that it eschews Star Wars traditions. There's no Jedi. There is no opening crawl. In fact, the opening crawl is replaced by a cold open, which is unheard of. And I would like to say that the opening crawl of A New Hope is essentially the entire plot of Rogue One, which is cool. Yes, exactly. I didn't even put that together. So I think, and, and again, I'm trying to stick with the actual content before I get into the themes. It's probably the most gorgeous cinematography of the entire franchise. Because it utilizes the gorgeous, and now this is key, the gorgeous horizon of these worlds. Whereas most of the Star Wars films, I feel like, focuses on the landscapes, Rogue One focuses on the horizons and view of, and, and view of the Death Star across the planet or hovering above or shooting down below. So I feel like it's skyline shots are as stunning as I've seen in these films. That's, I was going to say, and I still think this, Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi is probably the most visually striking Star Wars movie, but your classification of horizons versus landscapes, that's a beautiful insight, man. People need to be following Eric Italiano. This dude is bringing it over thank here. Thank you, thank you, man. It's, as I said, I think it's choice to not cast a lead and to have its main cast be a supporting cast is brilliant diego luna felicity jones mads mickelson who i think deserves more credit for just being one of the most handsome bastards in the game like this dude is but non-traditionally handsome which is his key really you think so i would say he was not necessarily a traditional all-american like you know stout chin good-looking guy but he know. has this I think he has this kind of foreign, dark look to him that, that's great. He's one handsome bastard. Um, Donnie Yen, Riz Ahmed, Alan... Oh, no, I'm going to fuck this one up. Tyler. Alan... Tudyk. Huh? Sorry, it's Tudyk. Alan Tudyk. All of them are fantastic. The characterizations in this film are as strong as Star Wars have ever been. Every one of these feels like a... 3D fleshed out real person. 
So those are all sort of the technical wins that I think that this film has. Pretty impressive. But I don't even think that it's that that is its greatest strength. I think its greatest strength are its themes. It epitomizes the idea of the good among us rallying together for a greater cause. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. They aren't making choices based on some blind faith in the force. They are doing it through a combination of lifelong trauma and the knowledge of they have no choice. This is all we can do right now. And so to me, in that sense, it becomes the embodiment of the rebellion. This is what I think is this film's strongest point. For the first time, you feel like you're in the trenches with the rebels. There is something beautiful about the inevitability and the hopelessness of what they're trying to do. They are on a death march, and yet every step of the way, they become more passionate and sure of what they're doing. So bottom line, which is what I like to do on this show, I'd say it's the most human Star Wars film. And that is where its growing love comes from. Well, first of all, Eric, I think you should run for office because I'd fucking vote for you. That was a hell of a stump speech right there, sir. Thank I think you. we need I think we Rogue need to put one in- office. Yes. I am <laughs> going to run for leader of the Rogue One Troopers. <laughs> I think we need a, a artificial set, round of applause edited in here by our wonderful producer Eric. Putting based in on his own for speech. Myself? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So we, we I and I agree completely with with so much of what you said. Uh, we have now said multiple times that it is a war movie. And I love that it's this expansion of the genre in much the same way that the superhero lane is co-opting other genres. You know, like Logan is a neo-Western. Deadpool is a raunchy action comedy. Joker is a psychological character story. Rogue One did that for Star Wars. And to your point that you just said, this hopeless death march, it makes a new hope even better than it already was because we now know the legwork and sacrifice involved in setting up the rebellion that then goes on to bigger and greater things. So that in itself, to to retroactively make a 40-year-old piece of art even better than it already was, I, I can't think of a single other example of something even remotely comparable. Can you? No, and you just sort of made my point for me, how I said it feels like the first time your boots on the ground with these people, it recontextualizes every Star Wars film you've ever seen because you now understand the human sacrifice that's actually going into this. It's not all. What I like about this is it isn't some rollicking pun-spewing bounce romp through space. Direct shot at Marvel. (laughs) Direct shot at Star Wars. (laughs) Direct (laughs) shot at Star Wars itself. This is the consequences and sacrifice that every character that we come across makes are immense. And for the first time, you feel that. The, The title Star Wars is inherently grand, right? And I think that that sort of builds in a grandness that the films themselves can't always live up to. Fair, fair criticism. (laughs) Calling something the last Jedi. Hey, here's the last of probably the most 
probably the most inventive archetypal non-comic book superhero that's been made in the last 50 years you're already sort of as i said building in a ceiling on yourself with rogue one there's no sense of this fantastical the force and the jedi it's it's regular people like me and you not even fighting for our freedom because we're gonna die doing it but for the freedom of everybody and that is just so overwhelmingly powerful and it, it's something that is very difficult for the fantasy superhero blockbuster popcorn genre to really latch into you'll get those feelings when you watch 1917 or saving private ryan the thought of committing yourself to something bigger than you but in star wars you feel like a blip on the radar but in rogue one you feel like that blip can make a difference the sacrifices and consequences are integral to Rogue One's success. It absolutely, unequivocally, indisputably benefits from a specifically finite storyline. Even though uh, every character kind of, I don't know necessarily if they always get fully fleshed out, but they certainly do enough where I am supersly satisfied the fact that they all have this emotional ending that is so darker than your average Star Wars storyline is really important. It sets it apart from every other Star Wars film that's come before. And to your point, basically every other major franchise film uh, out there. It is a finite, definitive conclusion. Uh, I don't necessarily think Rogue One's perfect because I don't really think any movie's perfect, but it is so much freer than its compatriots in the genre, that you can love the adventure, every part of it, without being bogged down by God, expectations and established mythology, yes. which yeah. is arguably, arguably the undoing of the sequel trilogy. And, you make a a, and now let me cut in here. You make it, a great point about established mythology. It is no coincidence that both Rogue One and The Mandalorian are both A- widely beloved and b both treat the jedi as more of a distant rumor than this actual omnipotent force which they tend to be when they pop up and i think that the connection between those two whereas the jedi are more of something that's out there than something that's winning these battles for us help i love the jedi and i love the force i'm going to get to that more when we get to awards and categories because that is ultimately kind of my central hook into this universe. But what I, what I will agree with, and, and, you know, I'm on record as not being quite as hyped on the Mandalorian as everyone else, even though I'm a fan is that rogue one seamlessly fits into the greater star Wars timeline. while also importantly and crucially existing perfectly well as a standalone movie that crosses Star Wars with like Butch Cassidy, this kind of doomed but honorable, noble journey. And I think that is its greatest strength embedded within its genre expansion of what Star Wars can be. You uh, just brought up the Star Wars timeline. And that leads me into a point that I want to make about the character of Chiro and how I think that that's such an awesome portrayal of the faith 
in the force in that time where I want to ask you, do you think that he was a Jedi and now he's in hiding? Because that is sort of the vibe that I get. And that is what I really like. No, I don't think that at all. And I actually think that would be counter to his character. And I'm going to get touch on this more so when we get into our awards and categories. But he is a man devoted to an ideal and he draws strength strength from that devotion and belief. And I think that is what makes his character similar to when everyone was saying Tyrion Lannister is a secret uh, a Targaryen. I'm like, no, that undercuts his entire uh, character's depth pathos, and, and, yeah. and, and yeah, pathos and significance. So that is something that, that I feel strongly okay. about. So I think it's a fair question to ask. Now, let me say this since I feel like I've spent much of my time talking about how i think this improves our point of view of the star wars good guys let me speak on how much i think it did for the bad guys as well the empire and the death star are truly terrifying here as opposed to and while the term red shirt is a not for bad guys and b from star trek i've always felt that the empire can feel like sort of just red shirt bad guys. They're more of the idea of doing bad than actually doing bad, if that makes sense. While I love the original trilogy, and you know I'll probably disagree with your overarching point that is coming, that is a fantastic encapsulation of the failure of blockbuster bad guys in this series. And I just want to applaud you because that was a great comparison and, and analogy right there, like genuinely. So thank you, Brandon. So that's my point that for the first time, and actually we just saw this last week in the Mando finale with that pilot being truly despicable. And then in the episode before that, with that scene with Bill Burr, when they really showed us that these empire pawns have agency in the atrocities that they're carrying out, Rogue One elevates the empire and the death star to as i just said run of the mill red shirt bad guys to what truly feels like what you say space nazi and and i want to say just quickly before you move on to your point i think ben mendelson who is just great in everything he's never turned in a bad performance that i've seen his orson krennic shows you how cringeworthy terrible these human beings are genuinely like they're completely and utterly ethical lists exactly so i think that rogue one just does a long way in while it humanizes and weighs down our heroes it does so for the villains too yeah and i think it's impossible to not build on what you're saying by pointing out the obvious that it fixes a 30 plus year plot hole which is the exhaust port in the death star which everyone's like, why would you build such a super weapon with such an obvious weakness? And it turns it into a story strength, in my opinion, that Galen Erso smuggled it in there secretly in order to give the rebellion an opportunity to destroy this super weapon that he was forced to build. And not did it just fix that glaring 40-year-old plot hole, but it did so in a thrilling manner. That third act, that last hour is as pound for pound as good as Star Wars gets because you're at the same time going through the on the ground race against the clock with our Rogue One team, how they're trying to advance and get the plans. At the same time, you're going through this epic, large-scale dogfighting 
battle that, as I said at the top, really feels like a genuine military struggle. You've got people firing off plans and strategies and uh, flight patterns and all this really, as I've been saying, humanizing, grounded detail that Star Wars has long lacked. Not just that, but you're getting payoffs of characters that blow away what we saw in the sequels. Point one, I think the death of K2SO is more earned and dramatically rewarding than anything we saw in chapters seven through nine. And we're talking about a fucking droid. I think the hinted at love between Cassian and Jin feels more legit than anything that Kylo and Rey ever did. So not only are they filling in plot holes, not only are they delivering awesome action that I think best shows us what Rogue Squadron might be. I think that third act is our best sort of vibe of what that film is going to be. Not only do you get that, but you're getting legitimately fulfilled character arcs. So they're doing three things at once. And when you're doing these things, three things well, you've made a damn good film. Good characters, good plot, good set pieces. Now, before we move on to our awards and categories, I'm going to hit you with one very difficult question, okay? Choose one. You can only choose one. The Vader Rogue One scene or the Luke Mandalorian finale scene. Okay, so this is tough because of recency bias, but I'm still going with Vader because it is we've seen Jedi do the hero save the day thing before. I'm not sure we've seen the bad guy go on just a fucking rampage of sheer terrifying power that we saw in that scene. That is as scary as Darth Vader has ever, ever been. And as you like to call Darth, the most iconic villain in American film, the fact that that is arguably his on-screen peak is, is, and the fact that that was added in reshoots, I mean, (laughs) it's a miracle. It is as viscerally intense as Star Wars has ever been. And they're going to have to do a lot of work to create a scene that's more pound for pound badass than that. I agree. And I think there has never been a better example of efficient, quick character branding repair that has ever been seen from Anakin in the prequels being the most emo little bitch boy who ruined Darth Vader to Rogue One in that one scene in which Oh my God, Darth Vader's a fucking badass. And I wanted, that is what inspired. I watched that scene in in my rewatch of Rogue One and then I immediately tweeted, I want an R-rated Vader movie where he hunts down the Jedi that survived Order 66. Again, I know that's not going to happen, but that is what I want. All right, Eric, awards and categories for Rogue One after we've basically just screwed the crude language jizzed all over Rogue One for the last, you know, 45 minutes. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> you get this guy a couple of drinks and he starts getting raunchy. Jesus. Yeah, you know. Jesus. Um, uh, the real MVP award. Mm-hmm. This could go to a lot of people, but I think the corporate decisions honestly support what I'm about to choose. And that is Diego Luna as Cassian Andor. 
one of the most compelling creations in the Disney era of Star Wars. Wow. A spy fighting for a good cause, but doing terrible, immoral things in the name of that cause. And that first scene where he kills his informant, one of the most representative, powerful moments of the Disney era, because he had immediately said to everybody watching, this ain't your daddy, Star Wars. Uh, he is a representation of whether or not the ends justify the means. It's a great performance for you, from Diego Luna, an expansion of the type of people we see in Star Wars blockbusters. And when he is arguing Jin, and he spits at her, I've been fighting this war since I was six years old. I really understand the position he's been put in in his whole life and how he's been conditioned into this really violent and volatile lifestyle. So I think he's a really incredible creation. And, and there's many to choose from here, but I just love Diego Luna's Cassie and Andor. Some of us, most of us, we've all done terrible things on behalf of the rebellion. Spies, saboteurs, assassins. Everything I did, I did for the rebellion. And every time I walked away from something I wanted to forget, I told myself it was for a cause that I believed in. A cause that was worth it. Without that, we're lost. Everything we've done would have been for nothing. I had the same notes. Uh, they're all sort of broken heroes i wrote down cassian the moment you meet him is doing some slime ball shit these aren't your golden boy luke and rays this is something different so i totally am on the same page but that's not my choice well uh, hey now guess what brandon since we're doing our rewinds back to me having more than one answer oh Every time you like to, you know, overshow me with these multiple answers. No, it's just because I just like to hear myself blab. Um, <laughs> Which <laughs> is right. why we co-host a podcast Boom. together. Uh, all right. Choice one. Real MVP is going to the plot. Never have I related to the rebel cause more. Never have I felt for the heroes more. Never have I understood the goal more. This film, through its story, through its context of your boots on the ground with our war effort forget the star this is the war part that to me is what draws me into this film and that is what makes it its most valuable uh component next i'm going with the death star because man it is fucking scary i believe that this film is the first time that we're actually as i've been saying on the ground of the destruction of one of the worlds that it blows up and you get a better sense of just the just the unfathomable chaos that it could cause never has the death star lived up to its hype and awe more than it did here i think that's a great answer like a great answer because through modern you know action blockbuster technology we have been able to make the Death Star more threatening, but they also use it to great effect beyond being like, oh, well, that looks pretty cool, you know? Exactly. When it pulls up, when you see that shot of it pulling up over the horizon, it's 
terrifying. You feel the dread of this thing is about to obliterate my entire existence. That a lot of the time, the empire can feel like a simple caricature of the idea of villainy. In Rogue One, they are tangible threats. And that is epitomized with how well they utilize the mind-blowing power and size of the Death Star. To me, many of the shots and the way that Rogue One frames the Death Star were very reminiscent of the opening scene from A New Hope, in which we have a small, tiny rebel cruiser trying to escape the massive mammoth shot-consuming outlook of the Imperial Star Cruiser. In the same way of scope and scale, that is absolutely what they are trying to evoke here in Rogue One, that the Emperor, the dark side, the Imperial forces are this mammoth, insurmountable enemy. So I, I agree there. Jar Jar Binks is bitch-ass time. <laughs> <laughs> Substituting for the Jared Leto Award for worst performance, because this is keeping with our Star Wars tradition, the Jar Jar Binks Award for worst performance. For me, this has to go to the CGI on Grand Moff Tarkin. I don't such care. a baby. No, because he, that is the worst element of the acting of Rogue One. I'm not a guy who cares about the CGI or de-aging technology. I'm not a guy who's ever said, wow, that like really took me out of everything. But here, it is so clear that the uncanny valley is still very much alive and real. And I would also say that Mandalorian Luke season finale appearance was also wonky CGI. Yes, and have you seen the clips of the deep fakes compared to what Disney did? No, but I also hate deep fake technology, so I don't want to. Okay, fair enough, fair enough, because same. Um, okay, so for me, I'm going to say, I mean, look, I guess, I suppose since it's Star Wars and it's inherently supposed to be absurd, it's passable. But who the fuck gave Forrest Whitaker an Oscar? Seriously, what were they doing? Who do I have to write a strongly worded letter to because it's egregious so he's awful in this i think forrest whitaker is overall a good actor i think he is very clearly very obviously the worst on-screen element of this movie by far it's it's so bad nobody gave him notes like look, all right I don't need to go into the depths of what is probably widely considered to be a weak character. Next, I said this at the top, the score, not great. But again, these are nitpicks. Fair. All right. The Han Solo Award for best I, performance from a non-Force user. It seems like you want to go first. I've got two and a half. Ooh, okay. Then definitely go first because I got one. All right. First, K2SO. Similar to how we talked about uh, TARS and in Interstellar. A robot with a sarcastic sense of humor just works for me, man. I'm K2SO. I'm a reprogrammed Imperial droid. I remember you. I see the Council is sending you with us to Jeddah. Apparently so. That is a bad idea. I think so, and so does Cat. You're letting her keep it. Would you like to know the probability of her using it against you? It's high. It just works. I don't know why, but I enjoy it. And he's hilarious in this. And then next, I'm going with 
Galen Erso because he literally, as he says, he's like, I could have killed myself, but then they would have just gone on to do the work without me. So what I did instead was commit myself wholly to being an integral part of this so I could build in a fatal flaw. And without him and without his genuine sense of morality, Star Wars, like the rebellion stands no chance. Like he is the literal, he could perhaps be, except for like Luke, like the overall Star Wars MVP. He yeah, is, you're, you're uh, right, but I just want to point out this was like a, a 40 years later retcon. I no, do want to point that out. Of because course, I but I'm saying within the context of the universe, not the real world, within the context of the galaxy. I know, but what about the context in which how we consume these films for like decades before this came? I, but it wasn't decades for me. That See, that is where we differ. You have this sort of built up idea of what it should be where I just take it for what it is. Not what it should be, but it, I, I think it's important to note the context in which we, we did absorb it culturally. I think that that is worth merit and value in terms Plus, of the conversation. In the case of if this was the chicken and the egg, except the plot hole and the character, the plot hole did come first. So I will give you that. And you also just kind of warped my brain with that one. <laughs> that was a good one. Thank you, pal. That was, that was a nice bong oh. hit sentence. <laughs> and I'm not done. This is it by answer but i do want to i feel like we need to talk about chiro at some point uh i touched on it at the top so you're convinced he's not a jedi but he is somebody who believes in the jedi ways an acolyte of the force he's clearly in touch with the force and if you were to give him a lightsaber what stops him from being a jedi one of the reasons i love Star Wars, and I'm going to mention this again very soon, is the Force and the mythology surrounding it. One of the reasons I absolutely love Rogue One is because it also expands the actual lived-in culture of a galaxy far, far away. We get an understanding of the type of social institutions that popped up in this universe, which gives us an understanding of how these people lived. Chiro is is a devotee of the Force and someone who committed his life to a, a religious planet of Jeddah to kind of follow these. He, he's sort of a monk, you know, someone who studied the religion, knows the ins and outs and the spirituality involved, yet doesn't necessarily have any supernatural powers. Like a real monk here on Earth would devote his life to something he doesn't necessarily have control of. So that is one of the most amazing elements of Rogue One to me is that I feel more lived in in this universe and more specifically his character and expanding our our understanding of this culture. Like, okay, the Jediism was a religion and there were forced devotees that devoted themselves to the ideals of that philosophy. That to me is fascinating. And I want like expanded universe books on on that kind of subculture that I would absolutely read because I've become a huge fan of the canon novels um my han solo award for best performance from a non-force user it's your first option alan tudyk's k2so perhaps my favorite droid of the entire star wars franchise he's funny he's got personality uh personally i would love to see him and phoebe waller bridges l3 on their own little adventure maybe in just like 
a one, you know, 35 minute Disney plus episode of something. I would you totally have be to that. assume that he'll be in the Andor series, right? I don't know if he's been officially cast. I bet that's something we could look up and is probably happened. The anywhere but earth favorite planet slash locale award. Now, Eric Rogue, easy, one, right? Rogue one lists the name on screen of every planet doing the audience a favor. Is I that do a first? Not, is that yes, a new? It is a first. And I do not know why other star Wars movies don't do it. It's great. It's it's fantastic. I want every Star Wars movie to do it from here on out. I want to know the names of the planets right off the bat. Uh, for me, it's easily hands down Jetta. And but oh. because <laughs> but because of what I've been saying throughout this whole podcast, I have told you several times on here and many times today, my favorite element in all of Star Wars is the Force and the Jedi. So to explore a planet deeply tied to that ancient history of the Jedi. And what I just mentioned just now about the culture and lived in universe and subculture of force and Jedi devotees, such as Donnie Yen's Chiro, that is just chef's kiss to me. I loved it. It was so very cool while not being the center of attention. You know, I was Jedi, like, wow, that's I did great. not expect that. And of great course, cool. I, I've gone on like Wikipedia to read all about Jedi ever, Jedi ever since. So that's the type of stuff that I love the theorization and whatnot. So I'm going, I've got two. Uh, I'm going with Yavin 4, which is a famous Star Wars locale, right, Brandon? Yeah, the Battle of Yavin in A New Hope is, you know, one of the catalysts. Okay, the okay. So I there are some gorgeous skyline shots there. It's a, a very Earth-like planet, but it just looks great. And then this one's obvious. I couldn't believe you didn't pick this. It's Scarif, my guy. Scarif a beach great. in Star Wars? Like, that was mind-blowing with the... Uh, with the shore troopers and stuff and the X-Wings flying over the brightly colored beaches and sands and palm trees. Just the first time that they've taken us to a world like that. And it didn't feel like a gimmick at all. It felt like a truly new place that we had yet to see. And the fact that it was featured in the third act, phenomenal. I'd have to point out, and I think the expanded novels within canon do a good job of establishing that realistically speaking the, the empire probably has shore leave which means there are actual within universe most likely stormtroopers playing on that beach like some fucking space volleyball like hitting on <laughs> girls like drinking beers like that is probably a realistic thing that happens within that bureaucratic military industrial yes. organization cool. and it's just hysterical to think of like what are they doing on that beach Drinking cheap space beer, you know, like bonfires and stuff. Like beach soccer. Roasting weenies. But now that is a show that I would like to see. The day-to-day life of a trooper. A workplace comedy about being a stormtrooper. Somebody get Michael Schur, who did The Good Place and, uh, right. you know, Brooklyn Nine-Nine and right. all that stuff. Uh, May the Force Be With You Award for the best line of dialogue. Now, Eric, to me, there was... This one's... This one's- Interesting. I don't know if, while I do love this film, I wouldn't say it's a beautifully written script. I agree, but I would say there's a couple intriguing options for yes. sure. Okay, go ahead, shoot. I think for the unintentional hilarity, Forrest Whitaker as Saw Gerrera, save the rebellion, save the dream, Jim. Save the dream. Save the dream. Have you come here to kill me? I think that is definitely uh, pretty pretty fun. I think Jim Erso's laying the groundwork for episode four. Uh, rebellions are built on hope. What chance do we have? The question is what choice? Run, hide, 
Plead for mercy, scatter your forces. You give way to an enemy this evil with this much power, and you condemn the galaxy to an eternity of submission. The time to fight is now. Yes. Every moment you waste is another step closer to the ashes of Jeddah. What is she proposing? Just let the girl speak. Send your best troops to Scarif. Send the rebel fleet if you have to. You need to capture the Death Star plans if there's any hope of destroying it. You're asking us to invade an Imperial installation based on nothing but hope. Rebellions are built on hope. That's a pretty good one, solid. But the best. Both of best hers. Of Both when she does her speech at the base and then when she does her speech to the Rogue One crew when they're they're going to land, when she's like, they have no idea we're coming. They have no reason to expect us. If we can make it to the ground, we'll take the next chance and the next on and on until we win or the chances are spent. The Death Star plans are down there. Cassian, K2, and I will find them. We'll find a way to find them. She goes hard in the paint twice. She, she gets the squad gassed up. And that's leadership. That's tough to do. Okay, so that was clearly and obviously one of your many answers for this question because yes. you had it on tap, ready to go. Well, since you brought it you ain't up, you fooling I, me. You're like, yeah, yeah, no, I memorized this soliloquy. Just give, give thought, me my space. Let me hit the mic. I thought since you brought it up, I could squeeze one of my four yeah. in now. <laughs> All right, no, I like that. I like that I knew that just looking at you and hearing it, I'm like, okay, so clearly he was ready to talk about that one. <laughs> When I talk about uh, pop culture, a lot of the times I will draw a parallel between her hype up speech here and um, Lady Mormont in Game of Thrones when she declares Jon Snow as yes. king of the North. And I, I always think these yes. are two great hype ups of recent. Great like, company. Great yeah, company right? to have. They always put me in. Um, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. At the end of the day, I think my answer for this, though, has to be Donnie Yen as Chiro chanting. I'm one with the false, the false is with me. I'm one with the false, the false is with me. He really does draw power from his belief and his spirituality, which I've obviously said in the last 10 minutes is, is a great part of his character. And I think it's just a really special and like flat out cool subplot and ultimate conclusion for his character. I, I just really dig it all around. And I love Donnie Yen. So mine are sort of low key. One of which is in the first scene. It comes from Krennic where he's like, oh, look, there's Lyra back from the dead. It's a miracle. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's, and that's what I'm saying where for the first time, I feel like these villains are fleshed out. Like he's just not being a bad guy. Hey, I'm here to kill you. He's like, oh, I'm going to be a sarcastic prick whilst catching you in your lie. He's poor man's Hans Landa from Inglorious Bastards. Yes, great comp, great comp. And then next, I'm going with one from our boy Darth. Be careful not to choke on your aspirations, director. You don't like that one? I hate that line. It's so cheesy, such a dad joke. I'm like, oh, why did they bring that's Vader back? That's what he back? does, though. He only then, speaks in, that's see, that's- There's no other dad jokes. No, but he only sort of speaks in these sort of one-liners every time I've seen him. 
That is his and, MO. And none of them are terrible dad jokes. They're more intimidating, natural, organic dialogue. Here, at this point in the movie, in theaters, the first time I saw it, I'm like, oh, why'd they bring him back? This is like they're terrible, ruining his legacy again. And then, of course, 10 minutes later, I was like, oh, wait, never mind. This was the best thing they've ever done. Oh, we are about to diverge them quickly. Okay, and then next I have, as I just said, I think that both of Jin's sort of hype up halftime speeches worked. But to boil down to a line, she says, what chance do we have? The question is, what choice? And that's the rebellion right there. Like, fuck, like, do I want to fight in this giant galactic war? Not really. <laughs> but, like- but they're going to evaporate my entire planet if I don't. And that is the epitome of Star Wars. And that's what this film does well. We have some good choices to that. I feel like All we're right. bringing our A game. All right, next. Let's do it. Rewind that real quick award. I mean, for me, there was just one scene. Darth Vader. Okay, so... I I don't have any other explanation. I had Darth, but I subverted that. I think everything with Darth, where, like, that first shot of him, where the back-to-tank drains, and you get that quick glimpse of, like, the water at, like, starting to come down past his eyes, and you see how he's just sort of a shell of... Uh, that was awesome person with no arms and disgustingly burned you really get the sense that this man is a monster that is like yep. coming out of his if he, when he's not out doing evil shit he just sits in that tank and just clings on for dear life like that's what he does <laughs> you know so i thought that 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 everything his two scenes both watching him like come out out of that tank and showing the grotesque side behind who Darth is into him talking to Krennic. And then of course that final beast mode scene are just all probably this film's not best scenes, but when you think of rogue one, that is what you you think of. Well, I don't like the dad joke with Krennic. You're absolutely right. That the back to scene did a great job of putting him into this monster. He is a grotesque killing creature that you need to fear. And that does does a long way. It also shows that he's constantly in pain and psychosis The put this in the Jedi temple award. So that I just had this. Well, I think that makes perfect sense. It's a perfect answer. I would say, yeah, I mean, it's great. I would say if my answer is conceptual, don't be afraid to tell finite stories. Killing everyone at the end works great. It's emotional. It's definitive. It's not setting up any sequels. It just is the end of its story. It is a proper conclusion that makes Rogue One a really, really, really effective standalone spinoff movie and really effective as the first ever standalone spinoff movie. Great answer. That, that is a great answer. I did not see that coming. Because usually you use these for on-screen things. It, it, I it's do. Re- I do use yeah. yeah. It's for like the filmmaking usually. But this one I was like, I was re-watching it. I'm like, God, this is so effective. Right, yeah. Uh, the Rebel Alliance Award for the best hero moment. Uh, very underratedly, I'm going with the Rebel Soldier who realizes Darth Vader is about to gut him. And he just starts screaming, take it! Take it to his fellow soldiers for them to get the Death Star plans and just and just get the fuck out of Dodge. So I'm going with the entire third act. Um, <laughs> I went real micro. You went real macro. Every single one of them dies in a glorious way. Um, but if I had to boil down one, it would be the shot of the Imperial cruiser 
slowly. This is the one scene that I think the, the score is strong. The Imperial cruiser slowly crashing through the shield as Jin and Cassian kill Krennic and send off the plans. It shows the large scale impact that this small scale group had. Rogue One, may the force be with you. I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, what is the worst thing you can say about this movie? Eric, score you start sucked. Off on this. That's, that, <laughs> that's my one. The score is not great. Yeah. And I would say there are moments, again, what, what I said before, that the behind-the-scenes drama seems to bleed through to me and that there is a bit of aimless storytelling that could have been cut and or streamlined. But again, we're not talking about a lot here. We're talking about a sliver. Mm-hmm. All right, Eric, what's the best thing you can say about Rogue One? So usually this is where I will sort of give my overarching, rheumative, very wordy breakdown of why I love this film. Here, this is not the case because I've spent the entire podcast doing that. I'll just say this. I've said it before. I'll say it again until they change my mind. And I think in and of itself, it is a very powerful thing to say. B, this is the best (laughs) Star Wars film of all time. Of all time. I just... I, I like that for you, and I'm glad that you found Star Wars enjoyment that I have had since I was four years old. And I get why you would say this, but I just can't agree. That That is, I, I don't know if I could make the point more concise than that. Look, in the grand scheme of film as a medium, of course this comes nowhere close to the first three. But is it my favorite, and is it the first time that I, I've said this on this podcast 10,000 times, and it's probably why we're here right now. This is the first time that I understood the Star Wars magic, period, the end. And for that, Rogue One, for me, is always going to carry tons of weight, tons. That's pretty powerful. It wasn't until Mando season one, episode eight, that I felt that way. So I felt it. And then season two has just been one straight, straight to the neck dose of it. But uh, yeah, Rogue One, best GOAT Star Wars film. I do respect that. I think my answer is that I largely, that largely unencumbered by the expectations and lore and mythology of the saga films, Rogue One is free to not feel like a Star Wars film in a good way. That's probably my one baseline takeaway, best thing I can say about it. Uh, Eric, if you catch this on cable, are you watching? I'm going to say no for you. I thought about this one because it's an obvious yes, but I've thought about, have I ever actually seen it on cable? And I believe if I have, it would have been on TNT, but it's not on a lot. But if I and this lovely film ever cross paths, you could bet your ass I am parking my ass on that couch and watching. I agree completely. And that's an obvious answer. Yes, I'm watching. All right, last category. And we'll get you guys out of here. Stuff we think is cool that it needs mentioning. Eric, for the first time in the history of Post Credit Pod, I bet I have more answers than you. Good, because mine were all just going to ask you stuff. <laughs> all right. Because I me. wanted you to explain why them naming themselves Rogue One is a big deal. So this takes place before A New Hope. And what we learn in A New Hope is that Luke Skywalker's fighter squadron uh, squad is called Rogue Squadron. They're the guys who do the missile run on the Death Star in A New Hope. Now we know retroactively that they named it in honor 
of the rogue one spies and pilots and everyone who died getting them this vital information that actually, that basically gave birth and and established the rebellion as a real force so I think that's a retroactively really cool way of honoring that name that didn't necessarily have that significance before. And also the 1998 N64 game, Rogue Squadron, was dope. Do you think the Rogue Squadron film is going to have tie-ins to Rogue One? Potentially. Wow. All right. I have five quick fun facts slash trivia that I thought were cool. Um, one, a lot of people know, but it's worth rem- uh it's worth mentioning again. There is unused footage from A New Hope featuring Red Leader and Gold Leader in a lot of the dogfights used in Rogue One, especially in that third act, which I think is cool that there's clips of, you know, a 40-year-old movie in there. Number two, Galen Erso was modeled after J. Robert Oppenheimer, who obviously led the Manhattan Project and was on record as regretting the nuclear bomb that he created. And so I thought that was a really cool kind of real-life parallel that made it understandable. Number three, it was Donnie Yen's idea to make Chiro blind. I think that just added like a, just a really cool kind of uh, uh, little thing about him. Okay, yeah, I see it. Uh, number four, this is one that's known, but it's worth mentioning here again. The TIE Fighter sound effect, you know, that epic whooshing sound. Yes, it's tell a- me. It is a mix between a slowed down African elephant call and the sound of cars on wet pavement. Wow. I've always been curious. Yeah. So, I mean, it's relatively known out there, but like, because we've talked about it so much, I thought it was worth mentioning, especially because it's used in great effect here. Yeah, dude. I've always wanted, I've always said like, how did they, like the fact that they invented a sound like that is just speaks to all the little things that went well. And maybe deep, deep fun fact the guy who was handling the sound for Star Wars, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he recorded that sound to use for like a blaster or a weapon. And the only reason he put it with the TIE fighters is because he had to just present something to his bosses and he was planning on changing it later. So it wasn't even intentional. And that immediately, that sound with the TIE fighters, everyone in the whole building, he said, went fucking nuts. And he was like, I, he wasn't even planning it. And that is how it ended up. They were like, this is the best thing like we have. Oh my God. And so they kept it because of an accident. Just, that is what you call a fun fact. Yeah. Seriously. And then this is the last one and it's deep cut nerdy, but Cassian Andor mentions the guardian of the wills when he's speaking to Jin on Jetta. Now I knew this before I read it in a nerdy Star Wars book written by Chris Taylor. I can't remember the name, but everyone should read that book if they're into it. The original working title of George Lucas, uh, his manuscript for Star Wars was The Star Wars from the Journal of the Wills. And the Wills were intended to be these wise beings who narrated the Star Wars saga to their pupils, explaining it basically as having happened a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Now, obviously, yeah, so that's interesting. But obviously that flashback structure was ultimately scrapped. I I knew that from reading that book. What I did not know until today 
is that there is a theory among fans that the whales are actually the species Yoda belongs to. And I just thought that would make such a ton of sense and be this very cool, like last minute full circle connection if they introduced that through Grogu in Mandalorian. That would be very fucking cool. Like that's a deep cut 40, 50 year, like full circle moment. I just thought that was awesome. And I didn't know that. So you didn't just come with Rogue One stuff that we thought is cool. You just came with Star Wars stuff that we thought that we think is cool yeah but it was all you know born out of the rogue one gotcha. watch. awesome so that that's all of them all right now we're going to the twitter questions always feel free to interact with us on twitter we get up to a lot of crazy stuff all right this comes from at final take pod what is the one thing that helps set this movie apart from other star wars movies uh, I think we've talked about it. I think it's it's a war movie. It's completely different than unlike and unlike any other Star Wars movie. Feels completely different. Yeah, as I've said, I think it really puts you in the shoes of what it means to be a rebel and the sort of human sacrifice that goes into the grandioseness of Star Wars is perhaps clear for the first time. Uh, this one comes from at John Guifrey. Sorry if I'm mispronouncing yeah. that. Yeah, is Rogue One so good that it makes A New Hope an even better movie? Uh, I obviously think A New Hope is already better because I like the original trilogy. I think it absolutely does make a great movie even better because it yeah. fixes a major plot hole. It leads directly into it just days in advance. It lays the thematic groundwork. I absolutely thought it was the best example of filling in the gap storytelling. Same. <laughs> That's it. Same here. Same here. All right, last Anytime question. it has to do with the OG3, I defer to you. Yeah, but you can still have your own opinions. Yeah, but I don't have that sort of revere for a new hope that you might. That's fair. All right, last question comes from at Zero Smoking Man 2. Will the prequels to this be as awesome? Well, the prequels to Rogue One would be Cassian prequel series. films. Oh, that makes more sense. Um, I don't know. I don't know either, to be honest with you. I He was a cool character, but he wasn't someone who was like, oh, I want to know more about his life. That said, if it takes on the same tone that A, he had in this film, and B, of the film itself, as a more grounded, in the trenches, do whatever you have to do, no cost spared. This man is willing to do what he needs to do to, to get the job done. So if they continue that tone, I think it could be a very sort of grimy, behind enemy lines type show. One thing I am worried about is that in September, Toby Haynes replaced Tony Gilroy as director on the Andor series. So that's yet another example of some behind the scenes shakeups that doesn't always mean anything, but right. you know, uh, he Tony Gilroy did the reshoots for Rogue One. So right. All right. Is there anything else? No, that concludes our longest podcast ever. All right, y'all. We will talk to you either Friday or maybe over the weekend. If B, if you're free, I'm I'm down. Yeah, I'm Jewish, man. I don't celebrate Christmas. Oh, that's right. You aren't doing anything this weekend. Perfect. Well, I actually am because I do do kind of celebrate like the cultural Christmas. (laughs) But yeah, I got time. All right, sweet. And, uh, Leave us a review, please. Uh, follow us at PostgredPod. Um, happy holidays to y'all. Enjoy, finally, the oncoming stream of content that we've got coming. We've got Soul as well, by my count. 
we have three giant films that come out in the next three days uh the midnight sky wonder woman and soul and that's as good as we've had it perhaps all year so enjoy Cheers. My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius.